for journalists, there are certain professional standards. There is training. There is editorial review. There's corroboration and confirmation and an emphasis on eyewitnesses. And for citizen journalists, that is not the case. And we've also seen a lot of disinformation. Citizen journalists' videos that are not what they appear to be or only tell part of the story. Hi, I'm Gina Cerrito, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Lynn White and Judy Licht. We're the News Broads, broads casting about the news and all things media. We're here to give you insights on how it all works. A look at the news you won't find anywhere else. The slow death of journalism as we know it is one of the main themes we discuss here on the News Broads podcast, but the events of these first few days of June have made this issue even more urgent and frightening. The attacking of news crews, over 110 incidents of false arrest, being shot at by pepper and rubber bullets, beatings. One reporter even lost an eye. And all are for a first time in this country. One Australian news crew was even beaten while they were on live in the middle of a newscast. We've been uh, fired at with rubber bullets. My cameraman has been hit. Uh, we've also seen tear gas being used. Here we go, they're moving through again. This is exactly what it looks like. Exactly what it looks like. We're just safely Whoa. Um, oh. Amelia, can you hear us? Amelia, are you okay? Or your cameraman? Hello, Amelia. Um, the police just charged at Amelia and, um, and our Seven News cameraman there and looks like a, um, a policeman just uh, punched our cameraman. Most shocking of all is that for the first time ever in our history, they were attacked by both the protesters and the police. Why is this happening now? And what are the implications for free press in this country? Here with us now is Dr. Suzanne Nasso, who is the CEO of the American branch of Penn, which is an international organization, which among, amongst other things, advocates free speech and for the freedom and rights of journalists. Welcome, Suzanne. We are so delighted that you're here today. Thanks um, for having me. Well, what do you think, in your opinion, is the single largest cause of the hostility towards the media by both protesters and police? Look, this is not a new phenomenon in the sense that we did a report uh, back in 2015 on the protests in Ferguson, Missouri, and we documented a whole series of press freedom violations by police there. Uh, you know, cameramen who were interfered with, uh, journalists who were held back, uh, put into pens where they were unable to cover the breaking story. And so that this tension between journalists and police is longstanding. And I'll get to the protesters in a minute. However, I do think we're seeing something far worse. And to me, it does relate to a concern that we've had at PEN America for a long time, which is coming from the very top and the president of the United States, this attitude of hostility and uh, persistent denigration of the press, the term fake news used to characterize any journalism that he sees as unfavorable, targeting people by name, needling them, ridiculing them, you know, time after time over many years. I think that drumbeat, you know, we feared from the beginning that uh, that would sow a hatred toward the press and a kind of willingness to look the other way in the face of press freedom violations in this country. And I think we've really seen that come to roost over the last couple of weeks, watching 
police and state troopers, you know, in some instances, I mean, it's just astonishing, you know, while the cameras are rolling. You know, they, I mean, the CNN, I don't think I'll ever forget the sight of Omar Jimenez from CNN, who was you know, covering the protests in Minneapolis, so calm, telling the state troopers, tell me where to go. We want to get out of your way. You let us know where we can be. And, you know, as he is saying those words, you know, watching his arm be grabbed and his hands pulled behind his back and put into handcuffs as he is, you know, hauled away and, you know, one after the next, his producer and then his cameraman. I mean, to me, that reflects a new level of imperviousness. And then, you know, as Judy, you said, there have been over 100 incidents over the last few days. So not even that spectacle, which was embarrassing. You know, the governor immediately had to apologize and you know, this was recognized as sort of out of bounds, and yet it was only the beginning. And so I think there is uh, what we're seeing is a deep-seated view that on the part of law enforcement across the country that the press are the enemy and that they're on the other side. And, you know, in, in, in Cleveland, they try to, uh, you know, exclude the press from even coming downtown, you know. Uh, so I do think it's a new order of magnitude. On the side of the protesters, there have been fewer incidents, but still some very troubling incidents. And, you know, I think that goes to sort of this sowing of distrust in the media uh, and belief that the media, you know, has its own agenda and is skewing our discourse and cannot be trusted. A lack of understanding about what journalism is. And, you know, there are a lot of reasons for that. I, I think the public's understanding of journalism has really been undercut by social media, by fraudulent news and, and disinformation, uh, you know, even by some of cable news and kind of the, the blurring of the boundaries between reported news and sort of what I think of as talk television, which is people giving opinions on the air. Is the media partly responsible? Because as you just pointed out, um, cable TV uh, and even some newspapers now are really divisive in this country. Um, and so, you know, there's a divisiveness that it, there's a chasm that almost can't be breached or broached or whatever. Yeah, no, I think, look, there are multiple causes at work and there are ways in which the media has contributed to this crisis. I think, you know, the blurring of lines between factual reporting and opinion, the presence of political operatives as media commentators without necessarily clear disclosure of what agenda they're advancing and on whose behalf, you know, at times the blurring of opinion and, and news reporting in, in newspapers where you see a story on the front page that, you know, would have years ago been considered uh, editorializing and today is presented as news, uh, you know, and then, you know, we have a very polarized country where uh, the opinions come through, even in factual news reporting. So I think that's a piece of it, but I don't want to uh, overemphasize it because I think there are so many journalists who are doing credible work, and particularly local journalists. And local journalists, we know, are trusted more than national journalists across the country. And they played such an essential role, you know, particularly amid the pandemic, letting people know, you know, how to get tested, you know, what the rules are, where they can and can't go, what businesses are open and closed, who the essential workers are, you know, what the infection rates are, holding local leaders uh, and national leaders accountable. So such an essential role we've seen on the part of local news in the context of COVID and now in the context of protests. And so I think we all, at the same time as we need to 
be critical of the media uh, where warranted, we also need to recognize the role that they play. You know, they are essential workers uh, amid the pandemic, uh, amid the, the curfews in many cities, the media is recognized uh, as essential and able and, and, and uh, free to operate even after curfew. And I think that's very important and, and we should be careful not to undercut that. I think that is important. I think that, um, uh, you know, it's funny, I was, as you started, I was going to talk to you about, I wanted to ask you about essential and, and, and why the cops, in, at least as what we've seen recently, are, they don't see media as essential. And I was wondering um, why you think that is. You know, I think th they, these viral videos have probably struck fear in the hearts of, you know, many in law enforcement. There are many of them, most of them are taken by ordinary citizens, not necessarily news camera people. And yet they see somebody with a camera and they realize in a tense situation that may get out of the of control, they're being watched. And that makes them anxious. And a certain portion, you know, portion of that is understandable and necessary. And in fact, the role of the media to instill that sense of care uh, and, uh, even uh, awareness and awareness that what you're doing, you may be held accountable for. So I think some of that tension is natural, but what's missing is a recognition that part of what we're asking law enforcement to protect, you know, are, is our freedoms, a free press, uh, our democracy, that the media has a role in that, that you're not always gonna like what they report, that they're doing an essential public service and you know the, their designation as essential workers amid the pandemic reinforces that and i think that point has been lost and there's a, a deep rupture between law enforcement and the press and that is something that we need to focus on much more tightly and you mentioned it before i think because now all citizens are journalists everybody has an iphone with a camera Everyone can record anything they see. People are in a different mindset about how they behave. Sometimes they act out and sometimes they try to tone it down. But we're seeing in these instances that tempers are flaring and we're seeing some ugly things. How does this change? Where do you see it going forward? You know, it's true. And those citizen journalists under, take some risk on their own part. We documented uh, some years ago in the period after Ferguson, a whole series of legal enforcement actions targeting citizen journalists who had recorded on their cell phones instances of police misconduct. And then, you know, whether it was within the ensuing days or sometimes weeks later, they'd be brought up, whether it was a tax charge or, you know, some old infraction that the cops went and dug up uh, against them. There's a whole series of acts of retaliation. So citizen journalists need to be protected. It is lawful uh, almost under almost all circumstances to take these videos that forms an important public service. It's a lot of how we know. It's how we know, you know, what happened to George Floyd. And, you know, that has, uh, you know, activated the whole world uh, on an issue. So I think, you know, that line, though, is also complicated in that you know, for journalists, there are certain professional standards. You all know this because you, you know, you've been through it in your experience. But there is training. There uh, is editorial review. There's corroboration and confirmation, and an emphasis on eyewitnesses. And for citizen journalists, you know, who are writing uh, or or creating uh, little videos, that is not the case. And we've also seen a lot of disinformation. Citizen journalists' videos that are not what they appear to be, or only tell part of the story. So. I don't think we want to blur the line between 
citizen journalists and professional journalists, but I think each has their place. Yeah, I think it's it's hard for people, I think, especially the younger generation, to see the difference. Um, I, I wanted to ask you something on the transformation of media. Uh, we did uh, podcasts um, a little bit back, one on a newspaper owner, small-town newspaper owner, and one on uh, local TV and, and their futures. And I was wondering, when you talked about the importance of local TV, especially recently with the COVID-19 um, people trying to figure out where to get tested. It was people were really turning into tuning into local TV probably more than they they had been in the past, especially the younger generation. Um, so I, I I was wondering from you is if younger people are not watching the news at five o'clock at night um, and they are not reading the local newspaper, whether they just don't read it or they don't have one, where are they getting their news from, and is that contributing to what's going on? I think it is. Look, they're overwhelmingly getting it from social media. So they're th seeing things in their feeds that are posted by the people that they follow. And very often, you know, and you know this, if you're on Facebook or you're on Twitter, the marks that we're used to seeing of credibility in a news report, you know, whether it's the New York Times logo or the CNN logo or the byline or other indicators that you know we grew up with we don't even really think about but that are marks of professional journalism those are downplayed on social media everything's so abbreviated and truncated they're limited graphics particularly on your phone and so one of the major issues is that disinformation and credible information can look very much the same especially to somebody who has kind of grown up in this era and doesn't uh, know these news brands for what they are and remember, you know, the days when the seven o'clock news broadcast really meant something. And so that's one of the reasons why misinformation and disinformation are so dangerous in kind of the, the eyes and the minds of a rising generation, because we're not teaching them the skills to discern and to look at, well, where, you know, where's the, the, the date line from this? Was this person actually, you know, are they reporting from on the ground in, Minneapolis or Louisville. Uh, you know, there's a case of a video that uh, purported to depict protests over the last week that was from, you know, I think, a couple of years ago in Lebanon. And, you know, sometimes those deceptions are ferreted out. And, you know, now we see the social media companies taking a much more active part in trying to demarcate them. Some of that's controversial. You know, there's always the risk that they uh, tag something. Uh, erroneously, and we don't have good protections against that. But, you know, it's, we are, at, I would say, at a very early stage of adaptation to a very different world of news consumption. And there's a lot more education that we need to provide to a rising generation so that they are discerning news consumers and they know what they're reading. You know, it raises the question of the implications for democracy. Because without an informed public, and how can you hold fair elections and decent elections? I, I mentioned right before you got on, Suzanne, we were talking, and, and a few nights ago, I watched a documentary about the rise of the SS in Nazi Germany. And there was Goebbels making a huge speech to a huge crowd about how you can't trust the newspapers and they lie. And, um, you know, it was a, it was a page out of... Trump's playbook, really. Um, and it's the implications there were obvious. Um, here, how do you change it? How really do you turn around and get people to respect media? 
Yeah, it's a very good question. I think this has been a deliberate, concerted campaign by the president to discredit the media because he has known, you know, there would come a time where the reports about him were supposed to be answer would be to tell his supporters, yeah, you simply shouldn't believe that. And so he's been seeding that message for years. And, you know, we know we have this hardened core of people in this country who do not trust credible news sources, who believe anything the president says, who won't hold him accountable. And so the strategy has been quite effective. You know, how do we remedy it? I think it's a series of things. I, I, you know, I hope these steps by social media companies will make some difference, tagging false information in visible ways. And you know, they've been very slow to do that. Uh, but we're seeing it in the context of the pandemic where it's life and death. You know, what we have seen is they have the skills to do this and they can also push up uh, and press forward credible content, whether it's from the WHO or the CDC, so that if you look up something COVID-related, you know, that's the first thing you see. There's sort of a, a, a flash at the top saying, you know, here is information you can believe about this topic before you go to the anti-vaxxers or, you know, those who are telling you that masks don't work or that hydroxychloroquine, uh, you know, is a good remedy. Here are the facts. So I think that's part of it. I also think there's a huge educational piece. You know, we teach kids in this country how to analyze a short story, and that's great. I'm in a literary organization. I believe we should continue doing that, but we are not teaching them as a matter of kind of core curriculum how to discern, you know, what is a factual news report that comes across your social media feed? You know, what is a what is a serious journalism organization? You know, what is, what is uh, you know, something of unknown pedigree, uh, you know, that you really need to think twice about it. So we've started doing some of that as Pet America. We're actually going all over, over the country, educating people about how to recognize disinformation, educating librarians about how they can play a role in the communities where they work. But it has to be much more widespread. It really should be something that is institutionalized in our schools and you know, perhaps, you know, one hopes between COVID and political disinformation in this election cycle that we have finally had a wake up call that's going to make that happen. Do you believe that? Because I think it's true for some people, but not everyone. As you said before, people stick to their own belief systems and they don't really change much in their lives. It, given that we are so, so divided and that's the case, where do you see us like in five years from now, 10 years from now? You know, I don't know. This is you're asking that in a tough week where I've seen things that I never imagined witnessing in this country, to be honest, and where it, it, we, it feels as if we've fallen back so drastically uh, that, you know, the, all bets are off about what this country stands for. It, it kind of feels that way. Uh, you know, on the other hand, I do think there has been something of an awakening over the last week, particularly in terms of kind of the abdication of truth at the level of the White House. And you now have cabinet officers and, you know, the, the defense secretary sort of saying that he's been used as a prop and uh, uh, was misled by the president. You know, I don't know whether that's going to be enough to, or whether any of this will be enough to break through. I think if it is, and if we have credible leadership in the White House, that there's a lot of repair work that needs to happen in our democracy. And I think journalism and journalism education is a critical part of that. I, I'd really like to end this on something that you'd mentioned, which seems to be um, something that you believe in 
a lot, which is the education. Um, I have three children myself, uh, 13, nine, and six, and they are learning a lot of this already. Uh, my son's middle school teacher doesn't use one textbook to teach social studies. He uses di many different ones. And I feel that that's very, he's a pioneer when it comes to some of that. Um, and I was just wondering if you could tell our viewers what you can tell your kids on how to discern factual information. Yeah, sure. I mean, you got to look at, recognize it's not being brought to you by Facebook or Twitter. They're just the conduit. So you have to click through. You can't just read that headline and repost it or retweet it. You've got to click through and sort of see what the actual story says. Is the headline accurate? Where does the story come from? You know, is it a media outlet that you have heard of, you know, that certain media outlets, newspapers, uh, online, uh, sorry, television news organizations, they do have editors, professional journalists, uh, you know, there's certain reasons that, you know, not that they always get it right, but that you are on pretty safe ground believing what you're reading. Uh, at the same time, recognize the political that Fox News is different from MSNBC. That doesn't mean either, you know, always had this, has it right. They're serious reporters at Fox News who are, uh, you know, really digging out the facts and uh, covering various beats. And so I don't think that they're to be discounted, but there's also a lot of political commentary, uh, you know, that has uh, a, a clear, a very clear orientation, recognizing the difference between reported news, you know, are there interviews, uh, you know, are there facts that are being brought out for the first time or is this someone who is just opining on an issue and not bringing any original reporting to bear is there a byline is there a dateline you know suzanne it sounds to me like pen should be the organization that gets a textbook written for seventh graders or six you know whatever the age determined is most appropriate because that would be a really good way for schools who may not have the insight um, to to start something like this on their own. It gives them a textbook to work with. But speaking about books, I have to say that you are coming out with a new book exactly on this subject. Uh, it's called Dare to Speak, Defending Free Speech for All by Suzanne Nossel. I urge everyone who's listening right now to go out and buy it in July. But um, I think the textbook, I hate to, I hate to be an, uh, you know, a busybody, but I think that that might be a good idea. Yeah, I think there's tremendous scope to put out more resources. I don't know if it's a textbook. I mean, to Gina's point, that's not necessarily how today's exactly. seventh graders absorbing information, but it's websites, it's social media platforms, uh, you know, it's, it's videos very often. And, you know, the, we haven't talked about the verification of videos, but that's a huge issue as well, because video content is far more compelling for, for the rising generation. I'm sure you see this with your kids, Gina, uh, and I do. Uh, and, and so understanding what video can be believed, has it been validated, is very important, too. And thank you for mentioning Dare to Speak. Uh, you know, I talk in the book about really how in this diverse, digitized, and incredibly divided society, we could live together without curbing free speech. And, you know, as we see sort of just in the last week, that's a really tough question. We're watching our own government uh, repress those freedoms in ways that we haven't seen in generations. And I, I believe fervently that we need to stand up for free speech, but also update it and recognize the ways in which, uh, you know, how, what it means in a diverse society and how we use our powers of speech in a constructive way. 
Well, our producer said it. Truth itself is under assault, and he was one of our main talking points before we started this uh, interview with you. So thank you for sharing and so filling us in. Thanks thank so much. You've been listening to the News Broads with Gina Cerrito, Lynn White, and Judy Lick. Our producer is David Levin, and audio mixing by Barry Hirschberg.